You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book called Auction Ready, How to Buy Property at Auction Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? The elephant in the room.com.au. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp, and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. How hard is it really for millennials to get onto the property ladder? Is affordability really such a new thing that hits them unfairly? Does it really take an average person 12 years to save for a deposit in Sydney and nine years in Melbourne? Or with interest rates at all-time low, should they be busy saving instead of having lavish weddings and travelling? Not that anybody's been travelling of late. What are they doing right? What are they doing wrong? What can we learn from the way millennials are approaching life? Today, we're going to discuss the financial challenges facing first home buyers and millennials in general. I mean, is owning a home really on the top of the list of priorities anyway? Let's bust some myths. And if you're a millennial or your kids or friends are, I'm sure you'll pick up some really valuable information from today's guest. In this episode, we're joined by Glenn James. He's previously been a financial planner and now he's co-host of the My Millennial Money podcast. Thank you for joining us, Glenn. Thanks for having me, Veronica, and hello, Chris. Hey, Glenn. Good to chat, mate. And just want to say off the cuff, absolutely love watching your success and the growth of your podcast and just your scale really um, impacting people because I think we need more people like yourself out there educating around financial literacy because there's a huge gap out there and just love seeing it. What made you kind of pivot and really focus on that millennial sort of market and start my millennial money podcast? Well, it was more of a, um, you know, in my past life, I'll call it now, I got to the point where I wanted a new challenge and I was kind of podcasting on the side. And I really thought that, hang on, there is so much opportunity just to help people uh, in a, a basic way. And you said the word fin financial literacy. And I actually saw online this morning, there was a hashtag called FinLit and a few of us dinosaurs didn't know what that meant. Um, But basically what it was, the catalyst, I guess, was I used to have so many clients come into my financial planning practice that wanted financial advice. Now, what the financial advice profession sees as financial advice is different to the consumer. So a lot of people were coming in saying, I need financial advice. And I was like, no, you need a budget and you need to stop overspending. So that just kept happening and happening. And I, you you just can't charge people thousands of thousands of dollars to show them how to budget. So I had an online course, uh, the Glenn James spending plan that I used to use with clients And I used to say to them like, Hey, I'm happy to help you set up a budget, but it's going to cost three grand or you can do this online for $70, you know, pick one. I know what I'll pick. 
And then it was kind of like, well, I was podcasting on the side and then I really wanted to turn up my online content. Uh, so I called a friend or two and said, hey, let's start a podcast. Um, at the time, the word millennial was kind of everywhere and I wanted to do about money. So I thought, hang on, my millennial money, that'll do. And then we just jumped on the microphone. Uh, it was a bit of a train wreck, but it was still taking off. Uh, so we've refined it all. And I guess we're here today and yeah, just helping people building a community and yeah, having fun while we're at it. There's lots of challenges. I mean, a budget's a huge part of it. Um, no one teaches you how to manage your money. Um, society actually wants you to be very confused, uh, the banks in particular, because, you know, what money comes in, they want you to spend that. So, you know, tap and go, credit cards, short-term credit, these are all things to make it more complex for you to actually spend more money. What are some of the other big challenges you find with millennials where they just constantly can't get over that hurdle, whether it's savings or whether it's investing, et cetera? I think one of the big things is particularly, you know, the top end of the millennial, I guess, age bracket, our parents were and are baby boomers. And some of the messaging that are coming from our parents, you know, two generations up. So you've got millennial is Gen Y, then you've got Gen X and then baby boomer. Uh, it's, it's actually just different. And I think the pressure that um, millennials receive from sometimes their family who are older um, just doesn't apply today. Um, so there's that element. I also think as well, like, you know, there's a lot of well-paid millennials out there. Um, we survey our podcast group every 12 months and the average income of our listeners is 75,000 and the median being, uh, 70,000. So a lot of well-paid millennials. And I think you couple the messages from an, another generation saying, you have to do this. You have to do that. You have to save for your first home. It's like, Oh, I live in Chatswood. It's impossible to buy a first home here. Oh, it's all too hard. And then you've coupled with, we've got a good income and the amount of crap that's available for us to buy that was not around 15 years ago, even is just chogging or clogging up our cash flow. So, you know, you could have good income and no assets, but you've got a lot of expenses and your cash flow is tied down. So I think that's a big thing that I'm seeing. And then it goes back to more of a cash flow conversation and how you're building your cash flow as opposed to, and that's why I don't like the word budget because a lot of the times a budget, you know, that word can feel like you've got constraints on you. Whereas I think I use the word spending plan because it's like, no, we're just planning how we're spending our money. <laughs> it's a little bit like the difference between using the word diet or healthy eating. Yeah. And, and the whole thing is diets are crap because you just kind of jump into it and change overnight where it's not sustainable because you're not building that habit. But if you decide yeah. it's like, I don't want to be a dieter. I want to be someone who eats healthy. So I don't want to be a hardcore budgeter. I just want to manage my money better. And a lot of people say, oh, I don't know like what expenses, how much things cost me. I say, hey, when you get started on the Glenn James spending plan, just make a guess. Just guess 
make a yeah. and you know if you've gone well i don't know how much the council rates are if i own a home or i don't know how much my car rego is because you know that was eight months ago well save eight hundred dollars and if it's less sweet if it's more we'll deal with it let's just get a start and mm. just um and just make that step to a good financial lifestyle I'm wondering, I'm curious, you said that in, say, in the last 15 years there's been different things for um, young people, well, all of us really, I guess, to spend yeah. money on. Yeah. What sort of things are you, are you have you identified as being a real change in that really zaps the cash flow of, of somebody potentially trying to save their for their first home or just basically earning good money and, and not doing other things with that money? Yeah, so the real low-hanging fruit might be the afterpay, zip pay, uh, buy now, pay later thing, mm. uh, which is, you know, oh, that item is $600 or I can pay $150 a fortnight for, you know what I mean? Like, so I think yeah. that's really easy for someone to compute. I want that right now. I can't afford it right now, but I can afford $150 right now. Yeah, sweet. I'll do that. So that's kind of the low hanging fruit. And I really hope that the government steps in and start to regulate that industry or that portion because what we'll start to see there's been another competitor to afterpay saying oh it's now 10 easy installments whereas yeah, um, yeah, i think if it doesn't get regulated it could be 52 easy installments mm. and then yeah. it's so all that aside so that's kind of the low-hanging fruit side of it um, another thing cars i mean it's so easy to walk in and get a brand new car zero percent interest where the interest isn't actually a problem because if you look at a car repayment, yeah. this, there's such a small percentage of that payment is the interest. It's the actual chunk of capital. Uh, yeah. So it's easy to get brand new car finance. It's easy to use the emotional crutch. I have to buy brand new because it comes with a five-year warranty. It comes with a seven-year <laughs> warranty. A brand new car is safer. Yes, but if you use that logic, it means you have to buy a new car every single year. So mm. you can't use that logic. So- <laughs> and then the other kind of end with the, you know, the rats and mice, uh, there are subscription services. I mean, I coached a young lady who she was in dire need and about to get evicted, like horrendous situation financially. Um, and she was in debt up to her eyeballs and it all came back to bad cash flow management. Mm. And she we got, I think she got through it and she's like, oh, should I borrow money from my boyfriend and all this? Anyway, she emailed me back a couple of months later. Actually, I emailed her and say, hey, just checking in. How did that go? And she said, yep, I'm on, well on the way. I, I finally canceled a New York Times subscription that I had at $27 a month or something. I'm like, okay, well, let's just, it's awesome that you've got a New York Times subscription. One, you didn't know you had it. Two, <laughs> um, you're living, you know, hand to mouth, you know, trying to get by. Like, why have you got that? So it just speaks to that things that tack onto your cash flow that just yeah. um, clog it up. So there's just a variety of things. And like even um, the food, like it's so good that we can eat healthy, but you pay for convenience. So the um, the box delivery services and all that stuff. I tried that and then it pissed me off the amount of plastic that 
game in the box. I know, it's awful, and, isn't it? <laughs> and then it pissed me off that um, there was the assumption that everyone has the basic staples and I live yeah. in a batch pad and I don't have any basic staples <laughs> and I had to cook it. So I get a light and easy box delivered once a fortnight <laughs> just to throw in the freezer. But again, it costs money and you pay for convenience. I love the um, subscription ones. I've been guilty of that, you know, where you, you know, whether it's the TV or newspapers or, you know, lots of different things and they can easily add up. So what I, I mean, I don't know if you do this as well, is I just purposely lose my card every three to six months. <laughs> and do a and, reset. <laughs> uh, yeah, and just call the bank and just say, I've lost my card. And what it does is it automatically declines all my subscriptions and then I you have to make know what you want. I yeah. cannot believe that. Yeah. That is appalling. <laughs> no, what, what it does, because it, it's, it's a behavioral psychology issue. So to actually go into, and if you go into a subscription service and how to cancel, like where do you oh, find it's a, that? It's a total nightmare. I get that. But but why subscribe in the first place? Why wouldn't you change that behavior? Well, because sometimes you get you caught up in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And you want something and you I really want to watch that TV series and you have this idea you're always going to watch it. But then three months later, you still haven't logged in for three months. Um, and then you're like, well, I've just wasted 30 bucks on it. Uh, I don't want to cancel it now because I still want to watch that TV series. And so you just end up holding onto these subscriptions because there's this loss aversion that's at play. Yeah. Um, and so what I think you do, the best way to do it is rather than trying to go in and cancel one by one and figure out what you got. Just you nuke just it. <laughs> You just lose your card and then it just declines everything. And then you have to then go and re-sign up. Um, and if you have to re-sign up, it's a different like behavioral thing. Now it's like, oh, actually, now I've got to make a choice whether I want to really invest more money in this. And I find that's a way of just kind of clearing, clearing out every kind of three, six months and figuring, just basically tracking your spending. The, the worst one I had was I... I had two Amazon Prime subscriptions and I didn't even know it because I bought something yeah. with one email address and then the next time used another one. And even like I got, I had a delivery yesterday from Amazon Prime and I'm freaking out. I was like, did it re-sign me up or something weird? <laughs> it's just so confusing. When you, when you buy the um, Echo, they automatically sign you up to Prime when you log in and you can, if you've got your credit card on account, I'm pretty sure it automatically kind of signs you up because I got caught out with that as well. Yeah, and, and I think we're getting at the point where it's like, you know, it's death by a thousand cuts. Like people don't end up in $10,000 credit card debt because they've bought one lounge worth $500 and two chairs worth two and a half grand. It has been the systemic death by a thousand cuts sustained over a longer period of time. So, okay, full disclosure here, I'm Gen X, you guys are both millennials. When I, I was interested when you said there, Glenn, about the, the, the temptations that um, have, are around now that weren't around, say, when I was growing up and you mentioned afterpay and I thought to myself, well, mm. there used to be lay-by. Uh, of course, you didn't get the goods until you'd finished paying it off. There also has been credit cards for a long time and, to be honest, I don't really get the difference. There's also been interest-free, um, you know, Harvey Norman and the likes have had interest-free um, fridges, uh, lounges, whatever, for ever since I first set up home. So that's not really different. It's just a different um, delivery method. The cars, same deal. You know, you could buy cars quite easily 
when I was young too, um, and they were coming down in price, et cetera, et cetera. The delivery services, well, I knew people on Jenny Craig and they used to get their, their meals delivered. So there was a level of convenience still even then. But but the subscription thing is different. Certainly that whole pay-as-you-go model and and even in business, I know it in my business. And I and I object to certain like pieces of software, for instance. You used to be able to buy software and then you'd pay for an upgrade every few years, yeah. but now you pay, you know, a few hundred bucks a month or whatever. And, and it adds up to so much more. It's a great business model for the software company, not so great for the actual consumer. Um, and in business, and I, I noticed that change and, and I often will take the purchase option rather than the subscription option because of that reason. And obviously that's, that's come into our everyday lives. And I do see that that's a much more insidious way of taking our money um, but all the others, to be honest, I think it's the same shit, different shovel, basically. But yeah, I, I would push back on the comparison of lay-by and afterpay because lay-by in, like, I remember going to Kmart with mum as a five-year-old and you walk past the red light special tin or bin and then you go <laughs> and she lay-bys for Christmas. She was never engaged in any type of credit. Mm. It was just, I'm hacking my behavior and getting the thing, putting it behind the sh- in the storage section and I'll put 20 bucks on it every week. So yeah, she's not behaving in any type of credit where credit by default is if you take something and you owe money. So. Yeah, I, no, I, no, I agree. That's what I said. You yeah. get, you don't get the goods till you finish paying it off, but, but credit cards, I mean, after pay is just a different way of yes. Issuing credit clearly. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that those challenges per se, the credit challenges are certainly something that Gen X had, baby boomers didn't have. I mean, I remember my parents getting their first bank card. It was the first time a credit card was around and was that in the eighties? You know, I was definitely a kid anyway. Um, maybe the seventies even. So, so this is something that is in the last say three decades. Um, but yeah, I think that those insidious, um, as I said, the subscription thing. But the, the other thing that I, I'm curious about is there's also this sort of Insta world, you know, like there's the the aspirational set. There's, you know, I think, um, what's his name? Bernard Salt came out and accused millennials of eating too much avocado on toast. But there's obviously a lifestyle element to this and in aspiring to a certain lifestyle. Wouldn't you, would you say that social media in terms of, um what it presents as the ideal life is, is uh, I guess, a slip, providing a slippery pole for millennials? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a cultural thing as well. I mean, we know now that there's actually more cafes, there's actually more places to eat out than there were 15, 20 years ago. So mm. it's kind of like it's this thing where it's like, well, there's more people wanting to eat out, so we'll do more, people will open more cafes because there's more, I guess, work to open a business. But I, I just think it's it's like everything. It's, yes, I want everyone to go out and eat breakfast every day. Absolutely. But it's bloody expensive and it's a luxury. And, you know, if you're earning 50 grand a year and trying to save for a house and trying to get out of debt and trying to do this, something's got to give and it's either the going out every weekend has got to be turned down and you're capping that cost. I talked to someone, I don't drink alcohol. I never have. I've talked to some people, they're like, oh, I'll go out Friday night and I'll drop 200 bucks just on like going out. Mm. And that blows my mind. But 
something, I just think something's got to give because our personal budget pie is only so big. So what do you need to do? Well, you need to either tweak the pie. So give and take to one section or make the pie bigger. And that means more income. In terms of doing your surveys on your younger generation, have they really thought about the emergency fund um, and do they take it seriously enough as part of their finances? Yeah, and this is an interesting one. And because that sounds so boring, it's like, oh, my first financial goal is to have an emergency fund. (laughs) And I mean, the last, you know, however many years I've been crapping on about just doing that as your foundation, funny coming out of COVID, Um, the amount of emails, the amount of Instagram, the amount of Facebook posts said, man, I'm so happy that you told me about an emergency fund as my first thing, because it saved my butt. I got a thing the other day saying two years ago, we didn't have an emergency fund last night. The dog was really sick and we had to do emergency surgery. Um, if I didn't have the emergency fund, we wouldn't have been able to do that. We would have had to put pooch down. So I think it's just... It's getting to the point, it's like COVID was an example of something that happened that no one could plan for. And you just want to be prepared and have a strong foundation. And if it's your first financial goal to get out of debt, awesome. Get an emergency fund, awesome. And yeah, we say three months worth of expenses. Realistically, do what you want. I, like I'm sleeping just as mm. well tonight. If your emergency fund is two grand or eight grand, but I think as a good life buffer, uh, that three months is good. And then once you do that, now we can actually attack our goals because that foundation is done. How do you recommend people deal with that though? Do they just leave it in their everyday bank account near their other say, like their day to day spending? Do they park it at a different bank? And yeah, I, I think. How do you manage it? Yeah, I think it's got to be out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Um, just because it's actually, it's a, it's an insurance policy and it's not like, oh, we'll invest our emergency fund in this because if something goes down, you you know, I always say the analogy, if you're out and you bite down and you bite a bit of bone or chip your tooth or have an accident and you need $2,000 for a dental thing or you need that money now. So, and people go, well, I've got a credit card for that. And I'm like, well, I think the, Worst time to go into debt is when it's an emergency. Um, But also it's the excuses are, well, what if I need the money right then and there? It's like, okay, well, let's just park this and just talk about this little scenario. When have you ever needed, we'll just say $1,000 on the spot that day? (laughs) I, I can't think of in a scenario. And now with OSCO, internet and all that, yeah. you could have it transferred within the same day. So I think just say I want a credit card. <laughs> like don't try and I don't care. Uh, just say I want a credit card. I don't want an emergency fund. Whatever. I don't care. But I'm just saying, for, particularly for me speaking on behalf of myself, which I'm yeah. I'm a professional at speaking on behalf of myself, Um I don't have a credit card because I can't trust myself. My emergency fund is out of sight, out of mind, because if I can see it, I'll spend it. So you just got to find who you are as a a money personality and play to that and tell everyone else to shut up. Do you find that, are you, are you really shocked with the lack of financial literacy of people coming to you? And, and why do you think 
you know, they are the way they are or we are the way we are because I, I tell you there's, there's older people that have got very little financial literacy as well. Mm, Why do you think it's come about and, and what are some of the shocking things that you hear them say that you just scratch your head and think, oh, my God, you don't even know the basics? Yeah, it's funny. It's not shocking because I look back at me growing up. When I first got my first job at 16 and then my full-time job and all that stuff, my parents didn't sit me down and say, all right, so you're getting money coming in. Uh, I think you should have a, a spending account. I think you should have an account and work out your bills. So it just wasn't there. So if that was happening for Glenn James in Berkeleyvale, New South Wales, I'm sure that's just going to be repeated hundreds of thousands of times elsewhere. So so that's fine. But now we've got access to learn about how to manage money. And I guess my aim is to get people uh, into their mid to late 20s without any consumer debt and good financial habits because you can walk straight into debt and bad management, but you just can't walk out of it. Uh, and what was your second thingy? What are some of the fallacies and stuff people say? Yep. Yeah, what um, are some of the things that they, um, you what? know, what are some of the things that, that they do say? Like, I mean, for instance, I, I read some some research that said that, you know, uh, first home buyers, so these people saving for their first home, a lot of them don't understand what interest rates mean. Uh, they don't yeah. understand the, the concept of compounding. Um, and then obviously that feeds back into the credit debt, you know, because they obviously don't understand the negative of that as well. Um you know, and that sort of astounds me that you can sign up for a credit card. I think you should be able to pass a financial literacy set, test to get a credit card for God's sake. Um, yeah. You know, and I guess that, that that shocked me that even when you get the bill in and you look at the numbers down the bottom, that, 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 that it doesn't compute, you know. Mm. So I'm amazed at that and how I guess how prevalent is that? Yeah, and I, th- I think it's out there and just on that point about um, interest rates and credit and all that, it's – the biggest fallacy that I see out there is people thinking I need a credit card to build my credit score because I want yeah. to get a loan in the future. And that's actually just untrue. It's yeah. it's American culture that has snuck in. It's old wives' tales. It's uh, it's just not the facts. The, the best thing you can do for your credit score is, one, pay your bills on time. Two, save cash. <laughs> like that's... You know, I am I run a personal finance podcast. I'm a money guy. I'm in this crap all day, every day. I don't know what my credit score is and I don't care because it doesn't impact my life because I pay all my stuff on time mm. Yeah, and I get on with my life and I'm not dictated by some third-party company. And again, if you want to drill down and get technical, and Chris could probably speak to more of that, there's basically three credit bureaus in Australia and the banks have access to all of them. Now, the banks and the lenders they will build their own credit profile based on the data they get. So if you log on to Equifax or whatever credit check thing, you get a free credit score, that's just one bureau and that's their view. The bank might get that data and go, oh, that's cute, but on the statement there's um, afterpay and it's overdue or whatever, so that means nothing anyway. So I think that's the the biggest one about credit. And I would lo- like I love having philosophical discussions around the credit card thing because why does anyone actually need a credit card? Mm. Like, I mean, I, um, credit cards, are, I, I've, I've had one. Bit, I just don't have one anymore. Yeah. I, I've got a bit of stick on this as well. Cause I've done quite a lot of posts around this and I despise them, you know, completely. I think, uh, you know, it's the same as CBA going into schools. 
teaching financial literacy. It's the kind of same as McDonald's kind of teaching nutrition, you know, like it's unfortunately, um, I remember when I was 18, I was earning $13,000 a year and I had a $10,000 credit card limit. Mm, Delicious. um, Like, (laughs) I mean, how do I, how do I even get that? You know what I mean? And so the problem is that, you know, the banks know that a certain portion, like like poker machines, mm. aren't going to follow the rules and they're going to make a lot of money of those few that actually just, you know, fail to the system. Yeah. Um, and the, the points thing, and actually how much interest you save, no one's actually actually done the calculation on how much it actually saves you. And even if you spend, you know, $10,000 a month, it's not actually saving you much interest. It might only save you about four or $500 a year worth of interest. Um and a couple of missed payments or you even just buy one more thing on your credit card because of the mindset um, mm. and you completely wipe out your savings. So, yeah. you know, it's like when you go to your accountant and your accountant says, oh, right, we want to save you to tax this year. So how about you you forward pay all of your health insurance for next year on June 29 and then you can get the tax deduction for it this year. And I'm like, that only works once. And the credit card is a bit the same. You know, you basically, yeah. you're forwarding, yeah. you're forward paying or you're, back, you're forward paying everything by one month. That's all. <laughs> That's all it buys you, one extra month. Exactly. Yeah, and there was actually, I did a webinar online, obviously with, I forget what it was for. I was a guest on someone's webinar and there was somebody that was saying, I, what should I pull 10 grand out of super or something to pay off my credit card? And it got into the, I guess a philosophical discussion and this individual said, oh, I don't have credit card debt that is left there month on month. I've just got it this month and I've lost my job. So basically this individual was running on the line month on month. Mm, His cash mm. flow stopped. He couldn't clear that 10 grand off the credit card. Yeah. So it's had to stay on there and he got stung. So I just think I just don't run on the line financially. And I mean, there's a discussion, to be honest, I would probably, if I travel again overseas, I mean, I've done it the last couple of times to the States without a credit card. Last time I was there in February, I did get caught out and it was a royal pain in the ass. Um, Try hiring a car from an airport and dropping it off at another location it's not happening without a credit card. There's a law in the States where you actually can't do it. Um, so that was a pain in the ass for me. So do you use a debit card, Glenn? Well, well, I did and I do. But if I go back overseas, I probably will get, you know, a two grand credit card or something. Just So a debit card wasn't accepted, like a debit visa no, for argument's sake? No, wow. no, not at the airport, no. So I think what it is, it's to... It would have been if I was picking it up from the airport and returning the car to the same airport, but I was driving from Columbus, Ohio to Nashville and dropping the car off at a separate hire car location. Mm. So I had to get an Uber and go to another car hire place downtown and do it from there. So are they worried then that you may not have funds in the debit I think it's an extra layer of being able to track you down because it's an official credit bank product or something Uh, like that if you steal the car. I I don't know what it is, but it's actually there was no hire car place in the terminal that I could get a car uh, with my debit card. (laughs) 
So back to millennials and their attitude towards housing. I mean, we interviewed a fellow named Chris Daff some time ago who's, who's looking at building a different sort of model for first home buyers down in um, in Victoria. And he was saying that his, his research had said that, um, you know, millennials were basically felt that they'd been locked out of the property market, that it just wasn't for them. Is that the sort of feeling you get when you're talking to millennials about buying their first property? Yes, until you start to have the conversation. So for example, again, you might grow up in suburb A, living on street A, and the instant thing is I need to buy a house. So I start mm. just looking around the same suburb. Now, if you if that suburb happens to be within three kilometres of a CBD of Australia, that might not happen. That's bloody expensive. So then it's that, oh, it's too hard. Oh, I can't do it. Oh, it's overwhelming. However, again, we're living in a different generation. Maybe if property is your thing, maybe you have to have a bit more strategy and say, look, I want to build wealth for the future. I like living in this capital city or, or around this beach area that's expensive. So I'm going to have to rent here because I like the lifestyle part and invest and buy a property elsewhere and essentially rent vest. I mean, where I live at the moment on the New South Wales Central Coast, you know, run of the mill suburbia house, very much attainable. And there's, you know, plenty of first home buyers on the yeah. coast that are doing it. But the ones that I know who are, you know, have quote unquote everyday incomes, they've sacrificed. They haven't had a new car. They haven't gone on international holidays. They've chosen one thing, stuck to it, got intentional and nailed it. And I guess it's if, you know, Central Coast is a good example, right? Because when you're talking about people who say they were living in Sydney and they were looking around and going, it's a bit too expensive. Part of their compromise was a lot of people going to the Central Coast are saying, well, yeah, I can't afford where I want to live today, but I'm going through a lifestyle shift at the moment and a transition from, say, single to couple to family. Um, and I'm willing to compromise. I'm willing to change locations. Um, so that's one of the things I guess millennials are doing is they're potentially willing to shift locations just to own a home. Yeah, and I think like if someone says, oh, I can't afford a house, it's like, okay, well, let's let's have a look at that. Well, you've got a car payment of $600 a month, okay? That's a factor. You're paying a little bit too much in rent. That's a factor. You might be doing this. That's a factor. You might be able to afford one, but it could be in another place that isn't a capital city. That's a factor. So I just don't like to see when people just throw their hands up, oh, it's all too hard. One, it could be two cases. Um, they actually don't want to change their habits and behaviors and they love overspending and just it's an excuse. Or the yeah. other one where we can really help is, oh, it's all too hard. Well, no, it isn't because of X, Y, and Z. Oh, sweet. Let's put a plan together. I kid you not, the amount of testimonies that we get when people do the Glenn James spending plan, there's a podcast episode <laughs> on My Millennial Money where a couple save 20 grand in one year just after doing a spending plan. Like, oh, wow. it's unbelievable. I get ones, oh, we saved an extra $500 a month. We didn't even know we had. So <laughs> it's actually... It's possible, but you just have to decide what side of the fence you're on. Are you saying it's impossible because that's a nice excuse for me to keep 
um, yeah. not getting my life together financially, or he's saying it's impossible because you want more information and want to learn other ways, which What's might about mean choosing whether you're a victim or not, isn't it? That's it, and it, that might mean um, we had a question someone wrote in the other day, like my parents, um, they're discouraging me from doing a property invest or buying a property. So it's like, okay, well, let's unpack this. Are they discouraging you because? They know that your life's a financial mess and that you overspend and you're in debt and you <laughs> won't listen to anyone or are they fearful because they've never been able to buy a house and they're renting and so whatever yeah. that, so it might be, okay, well, if it's a good relationship with your parents and it's not the latter that you're overspending and you're a brat, it could be, well, mum and dad, what about we go and talk to a mortgage broker or talk to somebody I would love to have you there and just let's get information. We're not deciding tomorrow, but let's just get informed. Um, or it could be the other thing, like my parents, they're totally supportive of, of what I do, but sometimes now with bigger decisions, I will just tell them after the fact because I don't want to freak them out. <laughs> hey, mum, dad, I bought an investment property. Oh, awesome. That's radical. Um, hey, mum, I got a motorbike. You what? <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> I mean, it's all with respect, but so I, I just think it's so hard to give careful, blanket. Right? It's so hard to give blanket crap on a podcast because there's always different scenarios. Did you did you get answers to those questions, or that was sort of rhetorical questions? With what? Sorry, you know, the person saying, you know, my parents are, are yeah. actually against me buying a property. Yeah, we actually didn't know, and I'd love to. Um, it was an anonymous question and I just, I'd love to actually chat to that because it's just such a, an interesting question, whether my parents are against me buying a property, that's just one angle. And we just hypothesize on, is it the angle because you overspend and you don't have a job or, or is it because uh, th- the parents are fearful? I, I mean, Yeah, exactly. It's, it's fascinating because sometimes you get also the idea that the parents never managed to get an investment property and they feel like failures. And so they and we to... see what we don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. So there's all sorts of stuff that goes on. I mean, I see on the flip side, you've got parents yeah. that are overly confident about, you know, the fact that they bought one family home 40 years ago and it's done really well and overly confident and think that their kids and they pressure their kids into buying and the poor kids go and buy stuff that basically traps them financially for the rest of their lives. Totally. So, you know, not all property is good property to buy and, and certainly the over-positivity can be just as bad from coming from the parents uh, as an as over negativity. Yeah, I met with a client once. A couple of, it was a it, was, it wasn't even a client. It was somebody, and I didn't engage them because I just couldn't add any value. And you guys will find this; you'll get it. You know, they bought property in Sydney in 2010 and did really well. Like, mm-hmm. pretty much rode the Sydney property wave out, and that meant in their mind they were sophisticated investors. And no, (laughs) you're not, you just got lucky. And what you're about to do next is financial suicide, but Mm. we couldn't tell them because in their mind, they're successful. Yep. I hear it all the time. It seems to be you go to a barbecue, you go to a party, whatever, a dinner party, and and minute someone knows you're in property, it's they're full of advice or full of trying to tell me how much they know. And they start telling me their property stories and I'm horrified um, most of the time, I'm absolutely horrified. And I think they've got no idea what ridiculous thing they've just done and how they've risked everything. Um, I was talking to someone, oh God, you know, 
this this couple and and they've they've obviously had some financial problems in the past because they had had actually had to sell their house at some point to pay off debt. Um, and then they went off and got some advice from on those spruikers and they are waiting. They've gone to put all of their super money, so everything they had in super, now has been put towards an off-the-plan one-bedroom apartment in Melbourne without Jeez. parking that hasn't even settled yet. And I'm like, there is, I would say, zero chance that that property is worth more, will value at what they off, what they paid, uh, I would say now. Um, you know, the, there's something like 60% of properties of, of um, apartments in Melbourne in the last decade on the second, so the first resale, 60% has lost money. Ouch. You know, at the tax benefits, you know, it's like you're paying 15% tax in super, so therefore the the depreciation, everything really doesn't doesn't add, it's minimal. Um, and you've got to lose money to get money there anyway and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, I'm, I'm like thinking how the hell, but the justification was, oh, but the data this company supplied us with was fantastic yeah it's just it's oh. well and it's it's funny as i guess we could say we're podcasters i the more i podcast and the more i do stuff the more i say this is just my view and what i do um because i don't want to sound arrogant or smug and i made that comment earlier about yeah if you want a five thousand dollar emergency fund i don't actually care because that's you and you've mm. got to make that decision. Uh, but this is just what I do. And a lot of the time people will have a problem with my answer. It's like, no, you asked me what I thought yeah. <laughs> just because it doesn't line up with. But at the end of the day, I'm sleeping just as well tonight um, just telling people what I would do in that situation. I think you're um, you're right. I think the, you know, the parent sort of impact is, um, is a huge element, you know, whether it's positive or negative. You also, um, especially if they've gone and bought an investment property, like every property investor thinks they're an expert, um, even though, you know, 80, 90% of property investors only buy one property. But what do you think about the friends' impacts for millennials um, and their kind of work colleagues and them kind of giving them financial advice and them following what their friends are doing when their friends are at the same stage and nothing they've done has really been proven, they've only kind of done it yesterday or the last month or so, <laughs> how do you think that the social sort of environment that people are in are compounding, you know, either good or bad behaviours? Yeah, I mean, on the friends and colleagues, quote-unquote, advice, uh, flip a coin. Uh, <laughs> like you're going to get whatever the coin flips. Like it could be a, some really good advice or it could not be. Um, I'm a big fan of encouraging the My Millennial Money, I guess, podcast community to don't be afraid to pay for advice, to pay for professional advice, whether it is with a prop, like as an example, it's not a plug for John Pigeon, my co-host, but his whole business is fee-for-service property coaching. So you could pay him just to be a sounding board. Like, we do these clarity calls. So, you know, he might charge $300 for a clarity call, but at least it's a third party who's a little bit further along in your world and can just give you some clarity. And I think it's, you know, people will save up and like, I wear nice shoes. A lot of you wear nice shoes. Those shoes might cost $300. Those shoes might cost $400. Why are you not spending that same value getting a little bit of advice before you pull the trigger on a $500,000 deal? 
Um, <laughs> like it just I, doesn't. I have this conversation all the time. Uh, this this fellow ring me the other day because, of course, I'm a buyer's agent, and he rings me and he's he's talking about shelling out two point four million dollars on a on an apartment, and he hasn't really thought through exactly what he wants. The, mm-hmm. How long he wants to own it for? Um, he doesn't have a plan at all. It's, it's uh, his first residential property. Obviously, he's, he's got very good earning potential, and um, and and he's a millennial. Um, what gets me? It, it was like, I you know, I quoted him just shy of ten thousand dollars to advise him on this particular property, which I actually think is really cheap, you know, compared yeah. to the actual risk that he's taking. And he's umming and ahhing over, and I'm like, mate, you would rather take a two point four million dollar risk rather than risk 10 grand to to really pressure test that 2.4 million dollar risk are you are yeah. you seriously that that's what you're going to do <laughs> it was yeah. like mm. well in that discussion like i've just got my calculator in front of me i would say to someone like that it's like oh okay so you you're spending 2.4 million dollars right you don't want to spend under half a percent yes <laughs> 0.42%. Yeah. So I, I think my view with professional advice, whether it's um, engaging a mortgage broker that might pay an upfront engagement fee or something of $200, $500, whatever that is, yep. it might be paying a financial advisor for some strategic uh, tax advice with planning or something like that. It might be paying yep. your accountant. I tell people, you want number crunching, pick up the phone, tell your accountant, hey, can you do me two scenarios? How much would it cost? Like, mm. I'll do that. I'd love to. So I actually think professional advice should and will pay for itself. But you've got to get into that mindset of it's okay to spend a couple of hundred dollars on getting advice. Yeah. And I guess it's also selecting the person, um, you know, you've worked in financial advice for a long time. Uh, Glenn, I have, uh, Veronica's worked in buyer's agency or property world. Um, and you know, accountants, you know, etc. Um, you know, if you walk into five different of any profession, the quality of that advice will, will vary, um, dramatically. Yeah. Um, and I guess it's just, you know, sometimes when people go get the advice with the mindset that it'll validate what they're doing. Um, mm. and it's very easy to be an, a validator as an mm. advisor. You know, mm. and so if you go in there with that mindset, what you actually want to do is go in there and be expecting the advice is going to be X and then be told something completely different and have your your version of what's right to do completely destroyed. And that's some of the things that I love to do on the first phone call with clients is they'll they'll come in, they'll think that this is their this is the right thing and this is what I'm going to do. And I'll say, Well, these are some of the challenges that I don't think you're thinking about and you know, and then they go, Wow, actually I actually need to save more. Actually, no, I shouldn't buy that type of property or whatever it might be. And I think you just got to be very careful with advice. Are you paying just to validate or are you paying to actually hear what is actually the best best advice? I also think when it comes to property, see in financial planning, you've got really tight controls over who can give advice and what advice you give and how you give that advice, right? Problem is with property is that it's unregulated. And yes. people are giving advice all the time without actually e- ever really fully understanding the, even the fundamentals or even the very fact that 95% of property is extraordinarily dangerous to buy. And I'm, I'm actually trying, I was talking to Eliza Owen from CoreLogic the other day. She's now the author of um, my favourite report, which is the Pain and Gain Report. And 
of course, this, this pain and gain report comes out every quarter and it shows how many properties in Australia sold at a loss in the previous quarter. And it's sort of plus or minus 10% every single quarter. And that's, that's not including the actual cost of owning the property or if you renovated it. This is pure sale price. Yeah. So the real figure, even just when she said to me, she just even just factored in stamp duty, the real figure then goes up to 16% just if you factor in stamp duty, add in all the rest. You could be talking you know, feasibly 25% of everything, every property that sells in Australia sells at a loss. And that's mm. then not including all the property that is not being offered for sale that is currently worth less than what was paid for it. There's an enormous risk in buying property. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people giving advice on property that have absolutely no idea of this. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I, I jokingly because I've got property, I've got investment properties. I love property. I've got shares. Like I just, you know, love life. Hashtag live in the dream or whatever. Um, <laughs> but when I was a practicing advisor, I would call them property zombies where they just want property. It's <laughs> yes. like, well, I actually can't help you because it's not my bag. So that's when I would refer them over to John Pigeon. But I just back to Chris's point with the professional advice. I think for anyone out there who does want to engage professional for any type of advice, sounding board or whatever, always ask the question, look, I want to discuss two strategies with you. And can you tell me in your view, the pros and cons of each one? Because at least then you'll get that negative advantages and disadvantages when, you know, I might do a statement of advice, uh, formal financial advice, there will be a section advantages and disadvantages. So I think it's yeah. clear to know the downside risk because yeah. when we talk about risk, there's a spectrum of risk, like, and it's how much you want to take on in terms of risk. So exactly. There's always some potential unintended consequence that you may not know about because you're thinking about the upside and the, mm. uh, you know, like just recently there was, uh, advertised in the kind of AFR SMH for over a year was a number of funds that were um, targeted very heavily at wholesale investors um, mm. with a very guaranteed investment return. Um, <laughs> and these were these were advertised pretty much for a year straight and that fund just went under, you know, in the last couple of weeks. I don't want to name it because it's going through courts and stuff like that. But, you know, this is something where you get attracted to the rate but no one would have explained to these investors the risks with being a wholesale sort of investor, the f- problems with liquidity and how these funds can go under. And a lot of people have just lost all their money because they chased what they thought was a guaranteed rate. So you're right. You've always got to be thinking about the disadvantage and the downside. I think whenever you're making financial decisions, because it's so easy to get excited about the upside, um, mm. but that's also not guaranteed most of the time anyway. And so. I think we've got to say out loud, like life is full of risks. And even our financial life is full of risk. So, you know, you could have cash in a savings account or term deposits. There is actually still risk holding that cash that it will be eroded by inflation. But you might be willing to take that risk because you can't take a greater risk of loss of the actual capital. Now on that, have you got a property Dumbo for us, Glenn? Okay, my Dumbo. And I'll shout out to my sister uh, because you can pick on family. Uh, but it's a parallel that we see time and time again in the um, My Millennial Money Facebook group in with our listeners and just with friends and family. And I think it's executing an investment 
or doing something without a strategy in mind. So mm. I'll give you an example. My sister, brother-in-law, they bought a house. Awesome. Oh, let's buy an investment property. Awesome. Oh, we want to start a family. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, can't afford the investment property anymore. All right, we'll sell it. Mm. So the problem yeah. that can happen is I reckon if you did an autopsy of the purchase price of the investment property over the five-year period, for example, purchase price, maintenance, interest repayments, and I'm talking wash up after tax, yeah, stamp duty, exit costs, I reckon they cost them money. Yep, I reckon it costs them money. Yep. Um, So the dumbo is the execution is the easy part. It's easy to go and buy property tomorrow. It's easy, like there's properties everywhere. Go and buy one, easy. I'm being dramatic, (laughs) FYI, for those who don't know me. Um, But take the time to do a strategy. Okay, and that could be, well, the first strategy is we're going to get our emergency fund. We're going to make sure our insurances are in place, our income insurances, so that's factored into our budget. We're going to make sure we have a, you know, a systemated, automated spending plan budget, whatever you want to call it. Then we're going to say, okay, over the next five years, what do we want our life to look like? If we buy an investment property, is that for us? Or should we just pump money to a share portfolio that gives us absolute flexibility? Whatever yep. your strategy is, you've just got to play it out rather than just looking two feet in front of you. I always say you've got to have one eye on the future, one eye on today because mm. you just need to hedge that because I've just seen too many people pull the trigger on buying an investment property yep. without spending 10 minutes uh, thinking about overall strategy. Yep. It's very true and it comes back to that guy in my example, the guy wanting to spend $2.4 million on a property without actually knowing what he wanted in life. He's got a partner. I said, do you want kids? You know, Mm. do you want to get married? Is this, you know... Do you, he's not even from here originally. I was like, do you want to stay living in Sydney? Is that is that your long-term plan? How long do you think you'll live in this place? It would ever, will it ever become an investment property? Like all of those questions. Um, I don't know. I just like it. Well, yeah. that's lovely. And if you're happy to, to take that massive risk and that plunge just because you like and you want the, like the idea of owning it, then you've got to understand that, you know, yeah, your circumstances might change and all of a sudden you find yourself selling it and costing you a whole bit, lot of money. Go and rent something a lot nicer. Totally. I think you're bang on. That to me is probably the biggest mistake where people go and buy the property just for the sake of buying something without really thinking through where they're going. I haven't heard anything that says that millennials are any different to Gen X just telling you (laughs) this is all the same shit that I went through. It's same silly justification, same arguments, same lack of foresight, everything. It's exactly the same. It's human condition. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. The common denominator is you're a human being. Mm. And weirdly, there's a module in my spending plan because it's not like I'm not trying to blatantly promote it, but whatever, um, <laughs> where I talk about habits and behaviors. And I draw so like a 25-year-old at one end of the spectrum and a 65-year-old at the other end of the spectrum, okay? So things that get better over time. It could be my income gets better over time, my assets get better over time and a few other things, things that get worse over time. It could be uh, my health gets better over time, my, I don't know, 
looks get worse over time. My <laughs> libido gets worse over time. Your number of ex-wives and husbands gets worse over yeah. time. <laughs> but there's one thing that actually flatlines and doesn't change, and that's your habits and behaviours unless mm. you're conscious enough to change it. And that's why at the retirement village where uh, Bob and Mary are bitching about the next-door neighbour, there's no different than um, the boys and girls in the schoolyard bitching because it's the human nature that doesn't change over time. It's such a good point because what you're basically saying there is the one thing that you yourself can do is actually look intentionally at your habits and make a choice about what you're going to do and then that can impact on your future. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's really the nub of this. And uh, we will include uh, the link for your uh, spending plan course in the show notes. Why not? It sounds like such bloody good advice. And I think, you know, if, if everything that we can get to at the end of this conversation is really the fact that to get educated is really the answer. If you have no financial literacy, you're going to make really terrible decisions. If you have some, you get to choose whether you'll make a bad decision or a good decision. So um, we really appreciate you joining us today, Glenn. This has been really interesting and at times very philosophical chat. And I thank you for having me uh, and sorry if I came across a bit harsh in some points. I just get so passionate. <laughs> it, well, it's Funnily enough, you're very moderate in the way you deliver your passion. But it's, right. I, it did occur to me earlier that, you know, it's not really sexy talking about, you know, savings plans and actually choosing not to buy new cars and choosing not to go on holidays and choosing not to go out every weekend and blow 200 bucks at the bar, you know, to actually have a goal and and work towards that goal and make active decisions every step of the way to get you actually where you want to be. So it's it's (laughs) not very sexy, but hey, when you have financial freedom, when you are in your 40s, 50s, 60s, that's sexy, Mm. you know, that is when life does get better. Totally, totally. We're about to do a series on what to do with your money in your 20s, 30s and 40s. Oh, what about 50s? Well, it's millennial money, so <laughs> got to draw the line somewhere. They will. Yeah. You will all turn 50 one day. Exactly. <laughs> if you're lucky. <laughs> Thank you so much, Glenn. We really appreciate your time. No worries. I'll see you guys soon. Thanks, Glenn. Great to chat with you, mate. Thank you. We want to make you a better elephant rider and this week's elephant rider training is... Let's have a little bit more of a chat about rent vesting. Now, rent vesting is, as you would have heard earlier, it's where you rent where you want to live and you buy where you can afford. Um, And so therefore you buy an investment property rather than your own home. And it can be a very effective way to get onto the property ladder for some first home buyers. There are drawbacks to rent vesting and there are advantages to rent vesting. I mean, one of the advantages is, as I said before, you get to live where you want to live. You don't have to compromise on your lifestyle or your connections or your proximity to your work, for instance, in order to buy a property. You can also, there are some certain tax advantages of rent vesting, i.e. you get negative gearing. Um, and uh, also it means that you've got rent coming in to help uh, pay that mortgage. So there's some of the advantages of rent investing and also you get to get into the property market at the same time. Some of the downsides of rent investing is that that capital gain that you get, because assuming you're buying a good property that goes up in value and that leads to another thing we'll talk about in a sec, but um, 
Sometimes you might be impacting on your borrowing capacity, which means that in the future, if you decide to partner up and have kids, you may not be able to afford to actually buy a home at that point, even though you've got increased incomes, for instance, because you've tied up your borrowing capacity on an investment property. So there are things to consider. And that's where having a longer term plan is really important. So you don't sort of back yourself into a corner. But the other thing that I really want to say around rent vesting is that Mm. what often happens is people go, right, well, I'm going to live where I want to live and say that might be in Bondi Beach or St Kilda, right? Somewhere expensive. It might be in, uh, you might be living in Brisbane. Um, You might be living wherever you're living. You live where you want to live. And then you think, okay, well, I've got to find an affordable location to invest in. And that's where the danger starts. Because when you start thinking, I want to buy an investment in an affordable location, you're starting to go into B and C grade locations. And you're starting to take enormous risk because affordability sounds sensible but it isn't necessarily always sensible when it comes to property. So when you're buying an investment property, don't then just go, okay, I've got to turn to an affordable location. I'd be looking at what's the the best location I can possibly afford to buy and where I can afford to buy a quality asset. And it might be that it is a one-bedroom apartment in a really good area, or it might be that there's certain areas where you do not want to be buying an apartment. You definitely don't want to be buying a one-bedroom apartment. So you really have to sort of look at what your budget is and where you can get the best bang for your buck. But take the word affordable out of the the uh, equation because if you start looking at affordable locations, you might end up buying an apartment in Brisbane or in a Melbourne, for instance, and holding an asset that is not expected to go up in value and might actually decline in value over the next 10 years, which is defeats the whole purpose of rent vesting in the first place. I think you 100% know the two issues I have with it is the future home um, and secondly, a lot of people rent vesting go the quantity strategy rather than the quality strategy. I think there's a there's a final element to it that has changed. Back before APRA did a full crackdown on the banks, you know, in 2014, 15, 16, um, and they basically reduced borrowing capacity for investors. Now, you used to be able to borrow a lot more if you wanted to build a big investment portfolio rather than going and buying a home. And you used to be able to borrow 10 times income for investments, but only six times income if you wanted to buy a home. So rent vesting did used to work because you used to be able to buy a lot more if you wanted to buy investments rather than homes. And then that would grow for you potentially at a much you know, compounding bigger rate. And so it sometimes made sense to invest rather than buying a home. And the second thing is interest rates. When interest rates are higher, it actually makes more sense to go down an investment route because of negative gearing um, and also because the cost of owning a home is higher. So your mortgage repayments and the part of that interest you lose is much higher. So when rates are very low, it actually means home ownership's cheaper and potentially buying a home is a better strategy because it grows tax-free. So rent vesting is great in the old world, but it's not perfectly suited for the new world of low rates and the same borrowing capacity. Please join us next week when we're talking about the gender gap when it comes to financial literacy. And I have to say, I was pretty amazed to hear that in 2020, things aren't a lot better than I thought they would be. Young women need to talk more about money and men and everybody else needs to talk with them about money. So 
Join us when we interview Jess Brady. She's a financial planner who's actually becoming a little bit of a mover and a shaker in this space. Some interesting insights and also some pretty simple stuff that women can do in particular to improve their financial literacy. Now, we realised when we recently recorded a Q&A episode that we would love to answer more of your questions. So we want to make it a little bit easier for you to send them through to us. So we've gone and set up a new email account, questions at theelephantintheroom.com. Let us know what you'd like us to talk about, which guests you'd like to hear from and what your burning questions are. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. So please press the subscribe button and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.